Okay, let's open up to the book of Job, chapter 9. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, please raise up your hand and we'll pass one out to you. Make sure that you have one in hand. And how we do things here at the bridge, alright? Russ, can you hold one over here? <laughs> Anyone else? If you need a Bible, don't be shy. That's what they're there for. Right up front, a couple there. Keep them up and just keep waving. Here they come. All right. There's still room to go to Israel, by the way. Again, uh, let me know. What is the date today? Anybody know? It's the 31st. Is that right? Oh, well, you guys have till February. So, that's good. Yeah, if you would like to go, we still have room for a couple or two to four more people could go with us. We can get you in last minute. And if you're waffling on that, boy, don't pass it by. Don't pass it by. Amazing opportunity. Job chapter 9, verse 1. Job is answering Bildad the Shuhite. No jokes this morning. He says, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overtakes them in his anger, who shakes out the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine, he sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon or tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Down in verse 19. It is a matter of power. If it is a matter of power, behold, He is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon Him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, He will declare me guilty. Skip down to verse 32. For He is not a man as I am that I may answer Him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. Let's pray for a moment. Father, the distance between us and you is great. Who can even calculate it? Who can figure it, Father, from where we are to where you are? And Lord, we're not even speaking simply about physical distance in the flesh. I'm just talking about, Lord, holiness and righteousness, how far from you we are. 
And yet, Lord, we deeply desire to be near You. And I praise You that You made a way. And I ask, Father, You will open our eyes to this way even more so today. For those who, who know this way, Father, that You would just impress upon all our hearts the value of what You've done. And for those who don't know the way, that it would be made absolutely clear as we study this morning. Father, we thank You for this time to sink into Your Word and to listen for Your voice. And we pray only speak to us, Holy Spirit of the living God, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be surprised to discover that in the end it's not happiness or prosperity or even a blessed life that brings us to a right point of view. No, the one thing that has more power to correct our perspective more than anything else is grief. Grief. Grief shakes us into reality. Grief, though it's an unwelcome guest, brings sudden clarity to the fact that this is not the best of all possible worlds. And you need to understand that if you don't know that already. This is not the best of all possible worlds. You cannot and will not live your best life now. No, I haven't written any books myself. But it's, it's an impossibility, gang. Sin has corrupted the whole thing. And this is not the best of all possible worlds. Oh, God originally designed it to be so. Eden and paradise, that whole scenario. Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day in, in communion and fellowship with Him. But I'm here to tell you clearly, please don't miss this, it will not happen in this life. I can't be close to God? No, you can be close to God. But not like we were designed to be. Not yet. Not now. Grief allows a person to see this world for what it really is. Grief allows us to see ourselves for who we are. Proverbs 15.13, the writer says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. And it's only in that place of the broken spirit that we begin to understand the realities. I'm not trying to bring you down, okay? And the truth is, God has given us incredible blessings in this world. Amazing things to fill our lives with, with moments of joy. And these moments of joy are real and tangible and blessings from the Father. The Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He gives us all these good things, but don't mistake these moments for the final destination. These moments, what C.S. Lewis calls pleasant ends along the journey. Nice stops, but they are not the end point. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. And he says it's not really that hard to see why. That security that we crave teaches us to rest our hearts in this world while opposing any obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, he says, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath. (laughs) C.S. Lewis wrote it. Or a football match. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. 
And know how easily we do that. We get comfortable. We get settled. We find our, our momentary pleasures a joy. And then grief strikes and reality returns. Grief teaches us that this world is not home for us. Grief causes us to long for our home. Remember what Paul said last week? Philippians 1.23 He said, I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I'm willing to live for Christ. As he said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Don't mistake the two. He said in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved His appearing. It's a vast difference between loving His appearing and loving this life. Grief takes us out of this life love and puts us into a longing to see Him again. Paul was always doing that, always looking ahead. Always waiting for the moment when he would see Jesus face to face. He had the Spirit, gang. He walked in communion with God by His Spirit, but he longed to be home where the reality takes hold. What I fear in modern Christianity is that we're fast losing that sense of loving His appearing. That we're not longing for His coming. We're not looking forward to His actual appearance. We're trying to make it happen here and now. We're trying to settle ourselves in this world and say, we can do it. We can do it. No, we can't. But we're fooling ourselves. Grief, grief does this, gang. Grief pulls us out of the false reality that we build up around ourselves and drives home the message that this world is not home for us. A child riding a bike falls off and skins his knee. What does he do? He races for home. He just wants to see dad or mom just to get home. Grief is the falling off the bike. We skin our knee. We hurt our hearts. We get broken in some area or another and we just want to go home. And that's a good thing. Job in his grief is in that place. He begins to develop a new perspective. What I love about this book is as we walk through and listen to him talking back and forth with his friends, we start to see perspective develop in the life of this man whose life has been completely destroyed. Talk about grief. If anyone knows grief, Job does. And as he goes, his perspective is altered. It changes. And he begins in chapter 9 to cry out for something that as far as he and his friends are concerned is impossible. It's ridiculous even to ask. In chapter 8, Bildad has just unleashed a a sermonette on the justice of God and the sinfulness of Job. He's just and you're sinful. Not just past sin, but you're currently a sinner. You're currently sinful. You must be doing something right now because God's just and that's why He's pouring out this wrath on you. Job responds in chapter 9. He says, In truth I know that this is so, that God is just. But how can a man be in the right before God? Job has, has a, a real conflict going on here. As you know, he didn't do anything wrong. And he knows he didn't do anything wrong. And yet his life is in complete shambles. And he, he's struggling with this thought. This doesn't make sense. I haven't sinned. And his friends are saying, oh, you're a sinner, that's why. And he's no, I haven't. He can't convince them. And here Job for the first time says, I don't think I could even convince God. 
I can't. How do I even approach him? How can I be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. How does anybody answer to a perfect God? But it's here in his grieving and in his, in his sorrow, as all the pleasantries and prosperities of his life are stripped away, that Job, for the first time, touches on the central tenet of the Bible. The central principle here. The thing that everything drives to. He cries out for the one thing all people in the world most desperately desire. To his friends, it would have sounded nuts. Verging on heresy. But Job's heresy is your hope. Job's heresy is our hope. What do you mean? Look at verse 32 again. For he, talking about God, is not a man as I am that I may answer him. That we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. It is, if you're taking notes, here's the first thing to jot down. It is the cry for an umpire. The cry for an advocate. Now, Job's language here indicates wishful thinking. He's saying, would that there was an umpire between me and God. If I only had someone to step in. The word in the Hebrew is yakah, a judge, one who decides. I need someone to try my case, Job is saying. I I, I need a a defense lawyer. I need a go-between, an arbitrator, an unbiased third party. Why do you call that Job's heresy? Because to his friends, this was a shocking thing to ask for. How do you go up before God? I need someone who can go head-to-head with God for me, Job is saying. Well, Eliphaz, back in chapter 5, verse 1, said, Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? Go ahead. Go ahead and ask. Who's going to hear you? Says Eliphaz. You're alone in this, man. Bildad, in Job chapter 8, verse 2. He says, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Bildad says, God's right. You're wrong. That's it. And Zophar, who we hadn't heard of yet, but, you know, at least Zophar. Job 11, verse 11. Sorry, I said there was no jokes this morning. I lied. Zophar comes along and he says this. He knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. You get what he's saying by that? It's great. He's calling Job an idiot, saying Job's request for a go-between is as likely as a donkey, the stupidest of all animals, giving birth to a human being. When donkeys give birth to people, then you'll be intelligent. You're an idiot, Job, to even think this way. Your cry for an arbitrator. Man, it flew in the face of the religious understanding of the day. Can a man meet God in open court? And Job's saying, I'd like to. I just don't have anyone to stand between us. Someone who could lay a hand on both of us, he says. Someone who's impartial, who can arbitrate my case between me and God. He's looking for the ultimate umpire. My friends, this is Job's cry for the Christ. I need a mediator. I need someone to stand before me. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, all the way over in the New Testament. I'll read in verse 1. 
First Timothy chapter two one. I, I, while you're turning there, I was talking to a gentleman this morning who was saying, "I have so much time, so much trouble keeping up with all the verses." No, please don't try. When I say turn to, that's when I, I'm encouraging you all to be in the same place as me. But other than that, the verses fly by right and left. Just jot them down. If you have a question, jot down the question. But just stick, try and stick with me the best that you can, and especially when we go to larger passages and I say turn there, that's when I want you there. You know, not that it matters what I want, but I'm encouraging you to be there with me. First Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, First of all then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the Father's heart. And please recognize this. How many people does God want to save? A handful? A pre-selected, predetermined company? 144,000? Try this, all people. The Lord wants to save all people, all humankind. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And by the way, that's more important to God than your current comfort is today. He would rather you know truth than know comfort. But here we come to it, the central tenet, the precept of all Scripture, Job's heresy, man's hope, verse 5. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man, Pope John, no, the man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I love how he inserts that there as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's why I'm here, Paul says. To declare Jesus Christ as the only go-between, the arbitrator, the the God-man, the umpire, the one who can judge between us and the Lord. The mediator. And that's Jesus. Christian people, listen. This is what every non-Christian, every non-believing person in the world, this is what they long for. We try so hard when it comes to evangelism to go out there and, and get people, you know. Missing the point that they are asking for, desiring, hungering for exactly what you have to offer. As Paul says, for this reason I'm here. To point out the mediator. That's why I'm here. And we get it confused when as believers... We misunderstand that we're not trying to sell them on our church. It's in a barn. Kind of cool. You know, there's property, pond. We baptize the pond. Sometimes the horses come in. You've got to check this church out. <laughs> My friends, that is not why we're here. We try to sell them on a lifestyle. Well, me and the missus are happy with the little ones and we have the big house and the things because God blesses us. No, no. We try to sell them on a set of values and that is missing the point. The point is you are to introduce people to Jesus Christ who is the perfect mediator who is who their hearts long for in the first place. Is that not why you believe in Jesus? Didn't you come to a point in your life where suddenly your heart started to say there's nothing I need. I need someone. And Jesus is there. 
Wait, wait, you're saying that everybody feels, feels this need? Everybody feels it, and Jesus alone can fill this. Now, there are those who don't yet realize their need for an umpire, so let's make the case. There's the cry for an umpire. Secondly, the case for an umpire. Remember back in the book of Job, how the story of Job began. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. Man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Seven sons, three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many male servants, 85 Taco Bells, several Papa Murphys. And that man (laughs) was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, catch that. We talked about it when we opened up this book. If anyone could present himself before God, it was Job. This was the most successful guy around. He had achieved greatness in human eyes. And so God chooses Job to teach us that everybody needs to repent. Remember we talked about that, that repentance is turning to God. And that for as as great as Job was, he still needed God. He still needed to turn to the Lord. He was rich, he was righteous, and he was religious. And it wasn't enough. And so his grief comes. And it's in his grief, when all prosperity and pleasure is gone, and the truth emerges, that Job begins to realize that for all his human accomplishment, he still needed an umpire. He still needed an arbitrator. He could not achieve enough on his own. He couldn't even plead his own case before God. He says in Job 9 verse 30, If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, Yet you would plunge me into the pit, and my clothes would abhor me. And we talked about this Wednesday. He's absolutely right. He he, he nails it. Our best before God, by comparison to His perfection, is nothing more than filth. Now, I'm really not trying to discourage you, but we love to dress it up. It's like taking a convict into court, but combing his hair and parting, shave and putting the suit on him, and, oh, well, he doesn't look guilty. Yeah, but he is. You may not look guilty, but the reality is, as Isaiah put it, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Listen to what he said. Your best, your good deeds, by comparison to the goodness of God, your good deeds stink. They're filthy. The best that we can do. Our moments of high prayer. Our Bible studies. When we're serving. When we're loving people by comparison Filthy rags. Isaiah got it, and, and he got it good. I don't know if you've noticed this, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if I mentioned this before. It doesn't matter. It's important. The first five chapters of Isaiah's prophecy are all about woe is you. Woe is you. Woe is you. Woe is you. Until he sees the Lord, and it all changes. And in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, Woe is me. I'm ruined, he says. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, Isaiah, how'd you figure that out? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. moment Isaiah sees God, sees the glory before him, it blows his mind and he realizes how absolutely sick, sinful, and filthy he is. And he needs a go-between. Isaiah understands that. And when we begin to consider the perfection of God the grandeur, the greatness, the glory, what your mind can conceive of. See, this is part of the deal. Philosophically, I believe that the reason why we can even conceive of God is because He exists. 
Because our minds, our hearts are longing for that greatness. Someone that we can worship. And the fact that He is so great and so glorious, your, your, your greatest imagination of God is so far beyond where you and I are. And we know this. And so we shrink back in horror at the reality of our sin and imperfection. And people respond in different ways. Some say, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm just going to live my life my way and I'm just not going to think about that at all. We do it as Christians all the time. I won't think about that until Sunday. I'll ask forgiveness then. You know, some churches' entire theology is set up so that you can go and, and just confess it away later. There was another rich, righteous, religious man like Job. Different though, Job was an old man. This guy was a young man and he came to Jesus and he said in Mark chapter 10 verse 17, he said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He said, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know all these. And and the young man, he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The Bible tells us at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving. Grief. He went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. You see, it's not enough to be righteous and religious and rich. Because self-righteousness, religion, and even wealth are smoke screens to the truth. They get in our way and we start to actually think we can rely on ourselves. But we can't see the truth for the smoke of this stuff. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't stop this young man right then? He went away, saddened and grieving, and Jesus stands there and lets him go. I'm reading the story, I'm like, Jesus, go get him! Tell him! You know, you're the umpire. You're the go-between. He's a mess, but you can take care of him. Tell him, Lord! And Jesus doesn't. Why is that? I have a theory. I think this young man needed to grieve. I think he needed to go away and find the true emptiness in his success. I think he was too young to realize it just yet. He had it all. And he needed some time to figure out that having it all doesn't work. It leaves you void. You ever accomplish some major thing? Something you worked toward and, and sweated over and you got it done and finished and it's wonderful and within a day or two you're going, okay, well that's done. Okay, so I guess on to the next thing and that's why they call it the daily grind. Because we keep going to the next thing and the next thing and the next trying to find that sense of satisfaction. You're not going to find it outside of Jesus. You're not going to find it. In fact, we were made not to find it outside of Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the creation, or literally the creature, the creature was subjected to futility, literally emptiness. Not willingly, None of us wanted to be subjected to emptiness. But because of Him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says, you were made empty. You were made with a vacuum in you, a hole, a hole in the soul, literally. And it's something that we discover often, it's in our grief, that as we go through life, 
None of our dreams satisfy us the way we thought that they would. Hannah, listen to me, sweetheart. None of your dreams are going to satisfy you outside of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, this has come up the last couple of, couple of studies, uh, especially to our, our younger people. You stand, I remember graduating from high school and being on the verge of the world. I'm going to conquer the world. I'm 45 and I am in a barn. <laughs> But Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O Lord. And you know what? If you're restless this morning, it's probably because your heart hasn't found Jesus yet. Or maybe you have, but you've kind of forgotten and you're drifting off trying to make it work. And you're not going to make it work. Not outside of Christ. Pascal is the one who called it the God-shaped vacuum. You've probably heard that, that. That in each one of us there's an emptiness that can only be filled by God Himself. And that, gang, develops a grieving in us. And then grief brings us to that reality. That God is perfect, holy, just, awesome. And I am not, and I need Him desperately, but how do I get there? The, the space between us is so vast. And old Job is right in that place. He's grieving in his need. He recognizes the necessity. He needs someone to plead his case for him. But God heard him. In fact, God heard him before he even spoke the words. You see, before the world was created, God set this in motion. God planned to bring an umpire. What is the character of this umpire? Number three, the character of the umpire. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 A familiar verse to some of you says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is amazing. The context of that verse is the courtroom. The courtroom. The word he uses, he says, Come, let us reason together. The word is the same word that Job uses for umpire. It's yakah. Let's judge together. Let's plead a case together. Let's debate our case in court together, says the Lord. But, but then he says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. How, Lord? I'll provide the umpire. I will provide you the arbitrator you need that your sins might be white as snow. I'll get the umpire in the game. How many of you are baseball fans? A few of you? Okay. You ever heard of Harold Douglas Harvey? One of the greatest umpires in Major League Baseball's history. This guy worked in the National League from 1962 to 1992 with a career total of 4,670 games. That's a lot of innings. 4,670 innings. No, games. What is that? 4,670. Someone do the math. Multiply that by 9+. plus. <laughs> Anyway, this guy earned, he was known for his authoritative command of baseball rules. He could rattle them off at any, at any time. And he earned the tongue-in-cheek title from the players of God. <laughs> they call this guy God because he knew the rules so well. And see, Job is saying, I need someone who knows the rules. Someone who knows the rules inside and out can look at my life and, and see that I didn't do anything wrong here. But someone who then can stand up for me at the same time. That's Job's contention. Verse 32. He's not a man as I am that I may answer him. That we may go to court together. I need a man to stand for me. So God became a man. 
So the mediator put on human flesh. Fully man, wholly human, able to mediate, listen, able to mediate from your perspective and from mine. What was Jesus' favorite self-designation? What was the one name he liked to call himself more than anybody else? Son of Man. Son of Man. I I hear Jesus say that and it chokes me up. He says, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It chokes me up when I hear it because I know every time Jesus says it that He gets me. He gets me. He knows how I ache. He knows how I hurt. He knows my grief, my sorrow. He can mediate from the place of knowing. Because he's a son. I'm a son of man. We're sons and daughters of man. That's who we are. It's who he is. The son of man, God, became a man. And Job says in verse 33, there's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Well, that's what Jesus did. He stretched out his hands between God and man on the cross. He bridged the gap. If you can imagine Jesus putting His hand on the shoulder of God and on your shoulder and saying, let's mediate this out. Let's restore this relationship. That's why I'm here. How could a mere man accomplish something like that? Well, the other part of his character, his nature is absolutely critical. He is fully God. This strikingly is something that more Christians struggle with than than non-Christians. Oh, I, I, son of God. But fully God, I, I don't want to mess with, you know, God the Father. Well, let's just mess for just a minute. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, the King James says, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Equality with God, as far as Jesus was concerned, he's not ripping God off to hold that title goes on and says, But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. My go-between, the umpire, is the God-man. The man who is God. What did Isaiah call him? Listen to these names. Isaiah 9.6. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, I like that with Jesus. Mighty God. Oh. How about this one? Everlasting Father. That is not a name that was given to the Father for the Son. It was given to the Son because He is the everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. John 14, verse 8. Some of you know this is one of my favorite passages. Philip looks at Jesus on that Thursday night and says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus goes, Have I been with you so long? And yet, you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. I mean, can you imagine the silence that went around that table in that moment? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What did he say? Peter's like, John, what did he say? Did he say that he is the... Did did you hear what I heard? And Paul would later write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. The Hebrew writer, chapter 1, verse 3, said, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature who upholds all things by the word of His power. The character gang of Christ, our umpire, is that of both man and God. Okay, Rick, I, I hear you saying this mediator Jesus is both God and man. Even if I completely accept that He is as you say, how do I know this mediator isn't biased in God's favor? Because I know how He started out, God. Then he became man. 
So how do I really know that he's fully rooting for me? I mean, you know, because he is God, right? Good question. Number four, the compassion of the umpire. Job 9.34, watch this. Job cries out, Let him remove his rod from me, and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. In other words, I just can't do it. I would love to speak to him. I, I can't. Let him remove his rod from me. Get this rod off my back. The thing is, for Job, the very rod he wanted to get rid of is the very rod he needed. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. I've got a couple of books over to the right. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Everybody turn there if you will. Job is feeling the weight of his pain and his anguish as though he had been caned. Get the rod off my back, he cries. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad, right? David's father. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. That's so good to know. Jesus isn't going to judge me by what he sees me doing. Or by what he hears me saying. Because if I was judged by either what I do or what I say, I would be in big trouble. Would you not? He's not going to judge that way. Well, how is He going to judge? Verse 4, But with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. And with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. Listen, gang. He's not going to judge based on appearances. He will judge based on fairness and compassion. But here's the thing. Jesus is the rod. The very rod that that Job once taken from him is Jesus. Jesus is the rod. What are you talking about, Rick? Verse 1 of Isaiah 11 says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. The word shoot is rod. Jesus is the rod that springs from Jesse. That is, that springs from the line of David. This is talking about Jesus' humanity. And then in verse 2 it says, But the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Talking about Jesus' divinity. There He is. Both man and God. God and man. And this rod that Job does not understand will judge all things right. This is the umpire. This is what Job needs. He's the one Job is crying for. But what right does Jesus have to decide my case? Listen, not only is Jesus the rod, but Jesus took the rod. Which is why He has the right. He took the rod off of Job's back. Jesus took the rod off of your back. He took the rod off of my back. The rod that we deserve. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying this, and please don't miss this. Everything Job went through, Jesus went through. We read the book of Job and we say, Oh, this man of sorrows and suffering and horror and torment and pain and loss. Jesus. Everything that Job endured, Jesus endured. Everything. Job said, my flesh is clothed with worms. Jesus says, I am a worm. 
Job lost all of his children. Jesus' children rejected him outright. Job was filled with grief and sorrow. Isaiah 53.3 tells us Jesus became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Everything Job suffered, Jesus suffered. Everything you suffer, everything you bear, everything you go through, guess what? Jesus already has. Which gives Him every right to judge. It gives Him every right to be our go-between. To stand in the gap for us because He has endured The pain, the sin, the suffering, the sorrow, the hurt, the shame, everything. Even our grief, which he understands full well. And then, if that weren't enough, he took it a step further. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 tells us he is the mediator, the go between the umpire of a new covenant. Now, listen. Legal language, listen closely. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Which is why Jesus had to be God. Because God made the covenant. And the only way for the covenant to be realized is for the one who made the covenant to die. We're talking about a will, gang. My dad has a will. And in it, the inheritance, whatever is left after he and my mom stop all their trips overseas and partying with it, whatever is left will go to my brother and me. But guys, he has to die first. There has to be a death before the covenant goes into action, before the inheritance is offered to the sons. God knew what He was doing. He died to put into effect the will. And by the way, to receive the inheritance, what do you need? You need your name written in that will. The Lamb's Book of Life. I'd like my name in the will. (laughs) Good. Then call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And your name is in the will and the death that He died puts immediately into effect your salvation. The umpire went to the full extent. See why He had to be both God and man? Man to erase the distance between us and God to show us we can come before the Father with absolute compassion and God to fulfill that covenant responsibility to which He bound Himself His own death to fulfill the covenant that He made. To fulfill His own promise. Man, it was His plan all along to enter into arbitration on your behalf and mine. That's what Job wants. I need an arbitrator. You have one, Job. And His name is Jesus Christ. One author wrote, It has always been his plan to make peace with the human race through a mediator. Through someone who could lay his hands upon us both, being at one time, by being at one and the same time, Son of God and Son of Man, a perfectly fair and impartial representative of each party, the cross is the great evidence of the fact that he did not come to take sides, but to make peace. Praise God. And so Jesus said in John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He's the ultimate umpire. He's the man we need. He's the God we worship. And Father, we thank You for Jesus. 
And yet again, here we are in the midst of the book of Job and we see Jesus. And we come to realize, Lord, that You are, Jesus, You are the filter through which all Scripture makes sense. You are the way we learn to read and understand the Bible because it's all about You. Behold, You come, Lord, in the scroll of the book. It is written of You. And I pray that You would restore to us, even if there are those grieving this morning, the reality that this just ain't the life that we're shooting for. No, the life that we long for is with You. It is on into eternity. Hey, until You come, Lord, to live as Christ. But we pray that You do come. And we love Your appearing. We long for it. And so I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Your name, Amen. Let's stand up together.